Morning, everybody. Please do sit down. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible as well, if I may, and get you to turn, if it's in a, one of our church Bibles, to page 1023, 1023, 1 John chapter 4, if it's your own Bible. There's a, an outline of the sermon on the back of the notice sheet. I hope you'll find that helpful as well. Get a prize if you can spot the typo on it. But 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to pray again. And then we'll read God's word together. Almighty God, we want to thank you again for your enormous love. We pray that you would protect us and keep us in your love. And in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful gospel. And we pray that you would help us to reflect that love in our relationships with one another. And we pray that you would do that work in and through your word and by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then from 1 John chapter 4 and starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children. You are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Tom, all okay? Brilliant. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Please do keep that open. As ever, my job is just to try and explain what these words are saying as God inspired them 2,000 years ago, and to help us to understand their application to our lives today. And we're thinking this morning about what it looks like if a, a church truly knows God, or if I put it differently, if the Holy Spirit is at work in that church. We're going to zoom in on two marks in particular. You'll see one in verse 6, we are from God, says John, speaking of the apostles. Whoever knows God, this is mark number one, listens to us. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. 
And then verse 7 is the other. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. They're not the only two marks of knowing God in the Bible, but they're necessary marks of individuals who claim to know God and of churches who want to make him known. Um, when we lived down in London, we used to have to drive to church. Our route took us past lots of other church buildings, including one that was really big and beautiful. Uh, on one occasion, one of the kids, aged four or five, said, why don't we go to church there? Uh, and it was a church that was famous for openly and publicly denying the truth of God's word. So we'd never have chosen to go there, but we weren't entirely sure how to explain that to kids. I don't know what you'd have said. Uh, we said it's because it's not a good church. It's a sad church. It's not a church that makes Jesus happy. It's a church that makes Jesus sad. Uh, cue the next and difficult question from the kids. How do you tell the difference between a good church and a sad church? I don't know what you'd say. If this was a seminar or a life group, I would have uh, asked you to turn to your neighbor and give them the answer. We don't do that on a Sunday. But what would you say? How do you tell the difference between a good church and a sad church? We went for it is partly to do with what people say about Jesus. And it's partly to do with how people live. So you need to listen to their words and you need to look at their life. And then, mercifully, I think we saw a fire engine, and we were all so excited about that that we didn't have to answer any difficult questions for a while. But it's a vital question, isn't it? Some of you are going to leave town in the next couple of months. You'll be moving to a new city, looking for a new church. How are you going to spot the difference between a good church and a sad church? And John says, here are two marks. Again, they're not the only marks in the Bible, but here are two that the Holy Spirit produces in Christians and in churches who truly know God. And we can think of them as truth and love. And we've got a point on each this morning, as you'll see. Truth comes first. And the lesson is, don't believe everything you hear in church. Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John calls his readers beloved five times. God loves them. He loves them. He always does it when he's wanting to draw particular attention to what he's going to say next. And once again, this command comes in the negative. We've had a bunch of that in one John heaven. We don't love the world. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. And now don't believe every spirit. I want to say up front that this is not an invitation to be a nasty and unpleasant and picky kind of person who lives on a permanent heresy witch hunt and is looking for any excuse to go into theological battle with anyone who steps momentarily out of line or misspeaks. We've all met folks like that. Some of us have been it, I suspect. The irony, of course, is that the manner of the combatant often does more harm than good to the cause of the truth that they're seeking to defend. Out of a man recently who's refusing to go to his own daughter's wedding because she is marrying someone from the wrong reformed denomination. And it is just like the Pharisees all over again. 
But I want to suggest that having a, a critical and overly judgmental spirit is not the only mistake we can make in this area of truth. I don't even think it's the most common mistake that's out there either. It is equally dangerous, John's telling us, to have an undiscerning, it's not that deep, they're talking about Jesus, I'm sure it's fine, attitude to the teaching that we're hearing. What John says here is repeated virtually everywhere in the New Testament by every author that we'd be wrong to believe everything that we hear in church. Not everyone who claims to speak for God comes from God. There are many false prophets as well. How do you spot the difference? Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And again, error comes in lots of guises in the New Testament. The big issue here is what people were saying about Jesus. They were at least a few strands of dodgy teaching that were circulating in 1 John. So in verse 2 here, they were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. That looks like it's a denial of the full humanity of Jesus in some way. He wasn't really like us. He just appeared to be. But then later in the letter for verse 15 on into chapter 5, three times, it looks like they're denying the full divinity of Jesus as well. He's not the son of God on earth, not really. And then it's interesting because basically every time in 1 John that he talks about God sending Jesus into the world or Jesus coming into the world, he goes on immediately to talk about the death of Jesus as the reason that he sent him. Uh, he dies so that we can be forgiven and cleansed. He dies so that we can live. He dies, we'll see, to be the propitiation for our sins. And again, it, John has that repeated emphasis. It looks like, because these false teachers who'd left the church that we've been meeting over the weeks were downplaying, they were de-emphasizing, decentralizing the death of Jesus as God's solution to the problem of sin. So put it all together. Full humanity of Jesus, full divinity of Jesus, and the saving work of Jesus were all being undercut in one way or another. And so John says, test the spirits, because that is not the spirit of God speaking. That's another spirit. Just before we um, apply this to ourselves, notice the word many in verse 1. Uh, we're not to think, sadly, that it's a rare or occasional thing. To find false prophets in churches, there are many. And I take it the reason John has to tell his friends, his beloved friends, to test what they're hearing is that it's not immediately obvious who they are. Jesus had spoken of wolves that come in sheep's clothing. At first glance, they look fluffy and Christian and they've got a great band. It's only when you get up close that you realize they're vicious and destructive and deadly. So it takes time to work out whether someone's a, a wolf or not. You can't tell just after a couple of sermons. It takes careful, patient evaluation. And that testing has to be corporate. This is something we're meant to be doing together. Their verbs are all in the plural. If you try and do it on your own, it's so easy to get lost in your own head and go down a, a rabbit hole, jump to the wrong conclusions. We are, though, to test what we're hearing. And there's no doubt that it really matters 
Just look again at the labels that John uses to describe the teachers in verse 1. False prophets, deceivers, uh, whether they realize it or not. Verse 3, not from God, but they speak with the spirit of the Antichrist. Not a little man, we saw this, didn't we, in a red suit, pointy ears, pitchfork, that sort of stuff. One who's literally just Antichrist, opposed to Christ as he was revealed by God and proclaimed by the apostles. Verse 5, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, with the world's agenda, and the world listens to them. So it's a pretty toxic list, isn't it? And the tragedy is that the church is meant to be a safe place of truth. It's meant to be the one place in the world where you can be sure that you're truly meeting with God, hearing his voice, and being reminded of God's priorities for your life and encouraged to take your sin seriously and clinging to the love of God on the cross as the solution. And instead, you could walk into any number of churches of smiley people and be taught the agenda of the world and fed lies about God that come from the devil. And you could go weeks, you could go months without being confronted with the problem of sin or being told about the solution of the cross. So it is a tragedy, but John wants us to be realistic. So friends, don't believe everything you hear in church, not in this church and not in any church, but test it against the Bible, against the clear teaching of the apostles. And if it's out of step with God's word, run for the hills, run for the hills. And take as many of God's sheep with you as you can. Uh, it should break our heart to talk like this, but it is necessary. A couple of diagnostic questions I was reflecting on. Is Jesus openly worshipped as God? Is he talked about? Not just God, the abstract, the mystical, but Jesus. Is he worshipped as God? Not only as an example of love, he is that wonderfully, but as the divine king the one who calls me to repentance and summons me to follow him. Do you remember where God said, this is my son, listen to him? So is this any church pointing you back to Jesus' word as the final and ultimate authority in all matters of belief and behavior? Or does ultimate authority reside in our own experiences and in our inner self? If that's where authority lies, it's not the spirit of God. It's the spirit of the world. Again, man said to me recently, he doesn't like the new minister in his church because, quote, all he's doing is teaching Luke's gospel. He's not really dealing with today's issues. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he meant he keeps talking about sin and salvation and Jesus. And he's not talking enough for this man's liking about caring for creation and wellness and social justice and culture wars. And please hear me correctly on this. Jesus is Lord of every square inch of creation. And his word applies deeply to our attitude to the environment, to our self-care. Uh, he teaches us to be passionate about issues of social justice. It's right that we should be awake and alert to what's happening in the culture around us. 
But if any of those things were ever to start to push issues of sin and salvation away from the the center of the life and the mission of the church, if, in other words, those good things start to become our gospel, or if the gospel of Jesus is assumed and those things get all of our airtime, then again, it's time to run for the hills. One preacher put it, God's agenda is not to help me think Christianly about all the topics the world is already talking about. Fundamentally, God's agenda is to make me think with incredible focus and clarity about the things that the world never thinks about or tells me about. So what's the the center of the teaching agenda of this or, or any church? Is it the lordship of Jesus, his work of salvation, or does it lie somewhere else? Paul resolved, I'll preach Christ and him crucified. Don't believe every spirit. The, the flip side is more positive to this, isn't it? What do you do when you find a church that does uphold and promote the doctrine and priorities of the apostles? Well, verse six again, we're from God, the apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. So if a church is preaching the same Jesus, the same gospel as the apostles, that's a pretty good sign that they know God. And that the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, is at work among them. Just glance down at verse 2 again. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he means to deal with the problem of sin, is from God. And verse 6 again. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's not always the first thing we, we think of, is it? If I ask, um, how do you spot a church at which the, in which the spirit is really moving and at work? How do you spot a preacher who's full of the spirit? Uh, not many of us immediately twig that the ministry of the spirit today is to lead people to confess that Jesus is Lord. And then to grow churches that stick like glue to the doctrine and apostles uh, and priorities of the apostles as we find them in the Bible. But that's how you spot the work of the Spirit. And so John says, test the spirits. Don't believe everything you hear in church. Um, Dan's preaching this evening. He thought this first point was going to be about him in particular. Don't believe what he says tonight. That wasn't the intention at all. Uh, do come along and encourage him. I hope you will. But if a church is faithfully and transparently passing on the words of the apostles to you as the ultimate authority for faith and life. If they're centered unashamedly on the cross as God's solution to the problem of sin, it's a pretty good sign that God's at work in them, that they know God. So listen to them insofar as they are faithfully passing on the words of scripture. It's the first mark in our passage of knowing God. Let's move on to the second. It's very different in flavor, much more encouraging for us, I hope. Not this time about truth, but about love. And the lesson is do love one another. Verse 7. I feel like we all need to take a deep breath after that first point, don't you? So take a deep breath, recenter, and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
It's one of the first positive commands in the letter. It stands in deliberate contrast, actually, to the uh, command that opened the last section, chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. This is the beginning of a new section. Do love one another instead. That's what everyone does who knows God and has been reborn into his family. And again, the negative sharpens the point, verse 8, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. It's that important, that inevitable assign. Um, we were told in chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And one essential sign that we're a part of God's family is that we love the other members of the family. You can't pick your family, but you do have to love them. Excuse me one second. So verse 7 says that love is from God, but verse 8 goes even further than that. It's not just that God is the source, the origin of all that is pure about love, all pure love, but he himself is love. God is love. It's not the first statement about his nature in 1 John. Do you remember we had in chapter 1, God is light, blazingly, perfectly pure, uh, true, holy, so bright that if ever you come into contact with him, you become aware of the darkness within you and you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you so that you can walk in the, the light. Thankfully, here we're being reminded God is not just light. He is also love, faithful, constant, abounding, and steadfast love. And all the way through the Bible, part of what that means is that God has been the great initiator. So he didn't wait for Noah or for Abraham or Moses or David or Israel as a nation to perfect themselves and overcome their own darkness before he began to love them. He loved them first. That's always the way with God. There's no test. He doesn't look around our room and say, who there is worthy of my love? Because he knows that none of us are. But he is love. And so he chooses to set his love on people who don't deserve it. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is what God's love looks like. This is the pattern for the kind of love that you'll find among anyone who knows God truly. It's not remotely sentimental, is it? It's not self-serving. No one is using the other person for what they can get out of them. This is costly, sacrificial, cross-shaped love. The word propitiation has the potential to confuse. Do talk about it over lunch if you're not sure what it means. It's not a word we use all that often. It, there's a couple of basic ideas to it. Let me try and illustrate. Uh, picture yourself from a cast your mind to the summer. You're sitting in a deck chair. And uh, you're lounging back and you're eating a juicy jam donut, okay? And as you take a bite out of the front of the donut, some of the jam squirts out of the back and lands on your top, just at the moment that an angry wasp arrives on the scene. You've got two problems at that moment. You've got jam all over you and you've got an angry wasp 
to deal with. So I guess you might get a knife if there was a clean one nearby and scrape it off your top and you could put the knife somewhere else. That would relocate the problem of the angry wasp. But you'll see with me, it wouldn't actually do anything to calm the wasp down or satisfy it. In a dream world, what you would want is some mechanism not only to take the problem away, but also to appease the wasp. Both of those ideas are here in this uh, word propitiation. When God gave Jesus to die on the cross, he was doing two things simultaneously. He was taking our sins away, the thing that rightly draws God's anger. He was removing them from us as far as the east is from, from the west. Um, theologians sometimes call that idea expiation. But he was also dealing with once and for all with the problem of his own anger at our sin. And that's the extra bit that's in this word, propitiation. Jesus, not some innocent third party, we know that right, but God himself in human form, taking our sins away and drinking the cup of God's wrath in our place as our substitute if we trust in him so that we might live. And John's saying, you could watch every Hollywood movie, you could read every Jane Austen novel, you could dissect the lyrics of every love song, and you will never find a clearer manifestation of perfect love than that. Because God loved sinners like us enough to take the initiative to send his one and only son into the world to die so that we might live through him if we believe. I hope that manifestation of God's love blows us away this morning. It's the greatest thing any of us will ever hear. It's the heart of Christianity. Please, if you don't get what I've just been talking about the last couple of minutes, do chat with someone afterwards. Come and chat to me. It really is the center of everything. And we'd love for you to go home today understanding it. But the application to God's beloved children is clear. You've received that love. Verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The object of the love is vital, not the world, not the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions from chapter two, but to love one another instead. Verse 12, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. You, get, you catch a sight of God in the love that the community has for one another. When it says that God's love is perfected, it means that it, it's uh, reached its goal. It means that it's completed. That God's intention in loving us was first so that we would love him, but then also that we would love one another. That's the goal of the whole thing. And so he says, beloved, let us love one another. It's part of the reason that God loved you in the first place. It's never meant to be a private thing. And it's a necessary mark of knowing God. So let's talk about love for a couple of minutes as we close. If you want to stop loving the world, actually one of the best things we can do is to reinvest the love that you might have given to the desires of the flesh and of the passion and the pride of possessions. Reinvest that love in God's people. And you'll find that it transforms your life. 
Of course, that love is going to overflow to everyone who's outside of the church as well. But that's not the focus here. And so I've got to say, I love the fact that when I look around at our church family, it's hard that, for this to, to grow as a culture in a church that's so transient as ours. But I look around, I see abundant evidence of you guys loving one another with a Christ-like sacrificial love and commitment to one another. It's easy, isn't it, to love people who can love you back? It's easy-ish to love people who are easy. What I see, what I hear all the time are comments of a love that is thankless and sacrificial and costly. In the time that people invest in others, in the practical care we give to those who are in need, you give someone a lift because they need it when you do their shopping, in the, the prayers you say for each other, when you're willing to step in and fill in for someone other who can't be there for whatever reason, the genuine concern that you have for one another's souls and spiritual well-being. Friends, that's not normal. It's not worldly. It's not even all that easy to find in churches, but it is wonderful. And it is a sure sign that you know God and have been born of him and that he abides in you. Now, of course, there is room for growth. For some, I am sure there is room for lots of growth. Uh, for some, there will be a need for repentance and to ask God to help us. But you love one another. And so we should, because God is love. And he has loved us in Christ. And therefore, we love one another. Two marks, then. There are others. should be obvious, though, in any Christian and in any church that knows God and claims to be making him known. One's about truth. We test what we hear. We listen to the apostles. And the other, that we love one another. Those are the marks of God's true church. When you find them, stick to the church like glue. And if ever you're part of a church that lacks them, run for the hills and take the others with you. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are challenging and uncomfortable things for us to think about. We're aware personally and as a church of ways in which we fall short. Uh, ways in which we fail to love one another as we should. Maybe we're not always great at testing the spirits either here or things that we take on board. Maybe sometimes we're overzealous at doing that. We would pray for your forgiveness for any ways in which we fall short. And we would pray that you would make it increasingly characteristic of us as a church and with lots of visitors here of uh, the churches that we represent in different parts of the country and different parts of the world as well, that we would be built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the truth of the apostles as they're recorded in the Bible, and that we would be communities who love one another with an abundant sacrificial love, just as you have loved us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.